Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word this evening, to think about yourself. We ask that you might take the troubles that, that we may have in our minds and let us just turn them over to you for this period of time, that your spirit might talk to us, that we might be able to listen to what you have to say. Father, we do want you to take every part of our life. Father, we give it all to you. Free us up from all the things that we're thinking about, that we might wait on you to see what it is you have to say to us. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Darrell asked me um, a few weeks ago to put a series together on the Holy Spirit. Hopefully it's coming up sometime. There we go. Holy Spirit. And you'll be happy to know, this is before we start on 2 Timothy, that I've pared it down from the 27 um, sermon series that I had originally planned to only eight. So we're going to do an eight-part series on the Holy Spirit, which is, I must admit, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be interesting. I'm always amazed at how little sometimes the Holy Spirit tends to impact on us as Christians. The eight ones that we're going to discuss, we're not, I've kind of worded them a little bit differently. And on the next slide, you'll see this, these are the, the headings for the, the series that we're going to do on the Holy Spirit. Normally when people talk about the Holy Spirit, they talk about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Um, we're going to do that a little bit differently because the Spirit of God, as he works in us and through us, guiding and strengthening us, is a very practical thing. What, what God does in us as he works in us has practical workings on a day-to-day basis and we don't want to lose sight of that. So we're going to start with God with us. That's today. We are his people. All of these as they relate to the Holy Spirit. He strengthens us. He guides us. He works in us. He works through us. He also works in the world And then lastly, let us not hinder his work. And so today, Holy Spirit, God with us. I have chosen just to start off this with a passage from Ezekiel. Just to set the scene from the Old Testament of God's presence with his people. I don't know if you remember the background of the book of Ezekiel, but the people of God had been disobedient and some were taken into captivity over to Babylon. One of the things that that happened was the people who had been punished and were struggling in Babylon under the domination of their captors questioned their faith. They, They questioned God. They questioned God with them. And Ezekiel was one of the prophets who was with them. And God was very kind to them and gave him various messages to give to the people to encourage them as they worked out how to live as the people of God in captivity. In Ezekiel chapter 8, Ezekiel is taken by the Spirit of God back to Jerusalem. I don't know what you know about Jerusalem, but that was where God's presence was in the temple. 
back in the time of Solomon's, God's glory had filled the temple. And so Ezekiel is taken back and God explains to him that the, the way the people are living in Jerusalem and in Israel is wicked and detestable and he's going to leave and he gives in chapter 8 the reasons why he leaves. And what I want to do this evening is to begin by looking at that and seeing why God left. And then we're going to look throughout the Old Testament, through the words of Jesus, to when this, the God comes back, in one sense, to be with his people. So in Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, it says this. Then he said to me, Son of man, look toward the north. So I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar I saw this idol of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things that the house of Israel is doing here. Things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. But you will see things that are even more detestable. So in Ezekiel chapter 8 we get the reason why God leaves his people. He has been amongst them and he's leaving. They, he says he's being driven away because of the way that they live. Going back to Ezekiel 8, 5 to 6, the first reason that he says that he leaves is, Son of man, look towards the north. I looked and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar I saw this idol of jealousy. Not exactly sure what this idol of jealousy was, but God who dwelt with his people said, I'm leaving because they have set up something else instead of me. I, as I dwell with my people, God says, I should be number one. I am their God. They are my people and they have put something else and they're worshipping it. And God is a jealous God says, that's detestable. I'm going to leave. Verses 7 to 9. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court and I looked and I saw a hole in the wall. And he said to me, Son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and saw a doorway there. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing here. So I went in and I looked. And I saw portrayed over the wall all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals and all the idols of the house of Israel. In front of them stood 70 elders of the house of Israel and Jazaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing amongst them. Each had a censer in his hand and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. Not only did he say that he was leaving because they had put up an idol in his temple, but they had all these hidden things that they were doing. They, they said they worshipped God. He dwelt amongst them and yet they had hidden idolatry in their hearts. All these things that they ferreted away. I hope you can think of all the different ways that I could apply that to us today. I'm not going to do it straight away now. I'll do it a little bit later. Right? But God was living with them, amongst them, 
in the temple, and yet even in the temple, they had in storerooms and around the places hidden away areas of their life where they kept him out of so that they could worship other things, detestable things, little things, crawling things, scorpions. They had the glory of God in their midst and they bowed down and worshipped drawings on a wall. They had God himself, the Shekinah glory that had come upon the tabernacle, that had filled the temple, that had gone before them in the, in the desert, living with them. And under the little storerooms, they thought that they could hide there and worship these little things and that God would ignore that. And God said, this is detestable. I'm going to leave. I'm not going to stay here with these people. Verses 12 and 13. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of each of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness? Each at the shrine of his own idol. They say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And again he said, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Each of the elders not only was worshipping the idols of Israel, but they all had their own God. They all had their own personal religion that they said, this is what I'm going to worship. What was the reason for that? They ignored God. They said, he's not there. He's not with us. He's forsaken us. He's not around. He hasn't got power. And therefore, I can pretty much choose what I want to worship. I don't know about you, but can you imagine the almighty God who made heaven and earth living amongst his people, his glory filling the temple and the elders and the people are worshipping whatever they want to in his very presence. He said that's detestable, but he says <laughs> it gets worse. Verses 14 and 15. Then he brought me to the entrance to the north gate of the house of the Lord. And I saw women sitting there mourning for Tammuz. And he said to me, Do you see this, son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. don't know exactly what, whether or not the idol that was there was the idol of Tammuz. Tammuz was apparently a god which is worshipped in various names around the region. One of these fertility type gods. You know, he died in winter and rose again in the spring. So they're mourning for him because it's probably just the start of winter. He's carked it. He'll come back again in a little bit. What's their issue? He is real. They're actually there at the temple of God mourning for Tammuz. They're accepting both gods as, as things that are acceptable for them to relate with. If you like, their focus should be on their god, the God of Israel, the one whom they've got a covenant relationship with, and they're saying, yeah, we're here, we're in the temple. Now you're their God. And yet at the same time, they've got their foot in this other religion, accepting it is valid, and they're weeping for Tammuz. Just to make certain, maybe, or to validate that as well, whatever it is, God is not God alone, even though he dwells amongst them. 
verses 16 and 17. He then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And there at the entrance to the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east. They were bowing down to the sun in the east. He said to me, Have you seen this, son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the house of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? God, the God who brought them out of Egypt, the God who had given them the land, God who had entered into covenant relationship with them. Glory filled the temple. What did they do? They turned their back on him. I think that's pretty crazily stupid to turn your back on God. But they turned their back on him and worshipped something he's made. Why? They can maybe touch it, feel it, feel the heat. They wake up each morning, they can see it. It has reality in some way for them. And they say, we'll turn our back on God. And they worship the sun. They worship something that God has made instead of God himself. Crazy. And God says, do they think this is a small thing that they do? Lastly, chapter 8, 17. Must they also fill the land with violence and continually provoke me to anger? Look at them, putting the branch to their nose. Or in chapter 9 and verse 9, The sin of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of injustice. Putting these two things together, the, the last thing that I want to just talk about, why does he leave? Because when you turn your back on God and you no longer follow him and you no longer live according to what he says, your actions change. And what was supposed to be a land of peace and milk and honey was becoming a land of violence and bloodshed. There were consequences to their rejection of God. God was not only offended by the rejection of him, but he found detestable the way that they began to behave behave as they stopped following him. All the moral and social implications of turning their back on God the violence, the debauchery, and if you read through the prophets, the, the downtreading of the poor, the lifting up of the rich, the showing, the lack of the showing of favourites, all those sorts of things were rejection of who God was. And God not only was against the rejection of him, but also the consequences for the injustice that was carried out. And so God says, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. I am not going to dwell amongst these people. And so, a couple of things. Number one, in the next chapters, I'm going to skip through these really quickly. You'll be pleased to know. God knows who's his and who isn't his. At the beginning of the next chapter, he calls one of the guys alongside, the, the, the spirit does, the, the person who's taking Ezekiel along by the hair, and he says, I want you to go through the city and mark with an X across. The word mark that it has there actually means the word X. Go and mark on the forehead. Everyone who, like me, says this is detestable. The people who don't have marks, he says to some other people, you go and wipe them out. Go kill them. 
hammer. Old, young, men, women, whatever it is, if they aren't in agreement with me, with the cross on their head, kill them. Because they're not mine. God condemns the wicked, those who turn their back on him. He leaves them. In chapter 10, if you read it later, it's worthwhile reading. I'm not going to go through it now. He leaves the temple. God's glory comes up out of the temple. And as you read it, you understand the people who are in the temple notice this is happening. This is what God did. In, in, the, in, in Solomon's day, the glory filled the temple and all the people knew that. God's glory now leaves the temple and all the people see it. How does it leave? It's got this huge, beautiful description of, of God's throne and the angels lifting it up and the rushing of their wings and the loud noise and a rushing wind and fire and glory. As God leaves, I'm not going to be with the people anymore. Where does he go? You're going to read chapter 11. It's fun to do. Go and have a read of it. He comes outside and he stands going towards the east. All these guys who are bowing down towards the sun, if they're not already dead, they suddenly see God there, the glory of God before them, and he heads off to the east. He doesn't go up. He goes east. Where's he going? This is an encouragement to the people of Babylon, the people who are in exile. He heads over towards them. Basically what God says, these people, this is how they live, they reject me, they turn their back on who I am, they don't even acknowledge that I exist. I will go and be with my people, I now know who they are, who are living in Babylon in the exile, and he relocates to be with them. What's this got to do with the Holy Spirit? God throughout history has always been with his people. I'm going to look now at a couple of passages in the Old Testament where God promises that in one day he will actually send his spirit to live with his people and in his people. The first reading that I want is from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. On the day of Pentecost, this is what the Apostle Peter quotes when he says, God's Spirit comes and dwells with us. So Joel chapter 2 says this, And afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. God promises he will send his spirit in Joel. In Isaiah, he promises it. In Isaiah chapter 44, he says this, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. 
They will spring up like grass in the meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. One will say, I belong to the Lord. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, The Lord's, and will take the name Israel. God promises to send his spirit on his people. How will you know that it's his people? Because they acknowledge it. They say, you're my God. He's my God. I'm a follower of God. They'll write it on their hand. They'll change their name. They'll do anything to identify, I belong to the Lord. And he says on those people, whom I save, I will send my spirit. I'll pour out my spirit like living water. As we go through the next seven or eight weeks, we're going to do all sorts of things where we talk about things like being baptized with the spirit and all those sorts of things. This is an imagery that, that we have, if you want, of that. And we'll do more discussion of that a little bit later on. But God promises throughout the Old Testament that, that those people who call on him, who acknowledge him as Lord, the ones he has saved, on them he will pour out his spirit. Further on in Ezekiel, he also makes this prophecy. Verse, chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. What's happened? You've got a change in heart. You no longer have a heart of stone. You now have a heart of flesh. You've had a change. You've been Regenerated, you've been saved. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Prophesied in the Old Testament, and there's more, we haven't got time to do them all, that God will to his people, the ones he saves, the ones who call on his name, he will send his spirit. And so at Pentecost... Jumping around, we'll get back to talking about Pentecost later on in the next eight weeks. And so at Pentecost, in accordance with prophecy and in accordance with Christ's promise, we read in John chapter 7 where he says this, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. You remember back to the reading from Isaiah? What are the streams of living water? The Spirit that's poured out upon them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And later on in John's Gospel in chapter 14, he says this, And I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, why? For he lives with you and will be in you. Later in John's Gospel, in chapter 16, he says this, But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then in Acts, he says this, On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
And so they met together and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? This is one of those times when Jesus says he's not going to answer the question, but kind of does. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set of his own authority, but, this is his answer, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Throughout the Old Testament, jumping back a little bit, not going to spend a whole lot of time in this. We may mention it later on or not. God had promised that the Messiah would come and that through him would be this kingdom set up. And that kingdom was the precursor to many of the prophecies of God's spirit being poured out. And Jesus says, I'm going to the Father so that I can send the Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, and are you going to fulfill everything now? He said, I really can't tell you that, but let me tell you this. I'm going back there and then the Spirit's going to come in power upon you and you're going to be my witnesses here and throughout the ends of the earth. What's he saying? He says, I'm going to heaven. In theological terms, he goes to heaven. He's enthroned on high. He's king of all things. Everything is placed under his feet. In fulfilment of all prophecy, the Spirit is then poured out upon his people at Pentecost. And so at Pentecost, in accordance with prophecy, in accordance with Christ's promise, the Spirit came. How did he come? Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. How did the glory of God leave in Ezekiel? With a loud noise, the rushing of the angels' wings, and with fire. How does God's spirit come at Pentecost upon God's people? Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. How did the Spirit come? He came in the fullness of his glory with a loud noise, with a rushing wind and fire. He came according to prophecy to God's people in all his glory. I've been brought up from when I became a Christian. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. It's a prophecy of God. It's a promise of Jesus. In fulfilment of scripture, he has come and dwells in me. Do you get the picture when you understand God's spirit lives in you? He came upon them as he's come upon us in all his glory. The spirit who lives within us is God in all his fullness and he dwells within you in all his glory. If you're a child of God's. According to prophecy, he comes to God's people, those who have said, I'm yours. And at Pentecost, for all those who said, Christ is king, God pours out his spirit upon them in fullness. Not just to them, it's on all those who follow Christ. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says this, but if Christ is in you, 
Now that in you is not just Christ, you know, I've got a little Jesus sitting on my heart down here, you know, we draw the little pictures of it in Sunday school. But Christ is the one who is the centre, as Paul's understanding of in you. Christ is the centre. Christ is the one who is king of your life. But if Christ is yours, he's your king. Your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. This is what Christ has done for you. Even though you are dead in your sin, you've been made alive by the righteousness of Christ. And, that being the case, he carries forward, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So if you have come to know Christ, there are some things that are true. Let's just go to that first one though. Is Christ your king? So, is Christ your king? If he's not your king, then you don't have a cross marked on your forehead. You're not recognised, as far as all this is saying, as one of God's. God's spirit then does not dwell in you. All that Christ has done on the cross is not yours. You suffer the punishment of your sin. If there's anyone here who has yet to be a follower of Jesus Christ, think seriously on that. Those people back in Ezekiel's day who had rejected God, even though he was in their midst, he destroys. He says, I'm your God. I made everything. It's detestable that you turn away from me. Turn back to me, and as we read about the whole of what we understand about Jesus Christ, the person work of Jesus Christ, is that by his death and resurrection, he restores that relationship that we have with God. He covers our sin. He covers our sin. We're made new, alive by his spirit. So if you haven't yet done that, the scriptures clearly say you're dead. You might be walking, you might be breathing, but you're dead. And there's no hope for you. Because you can't find God anywhere else except in Christ Jesus. Now if you haven't yet made that decision, I encourage you to make that. But if Christ is your king, and and for most of us here, I think this is what we would say, Christ is our king. We accept him, not just as our saviour, but as the one who has a right to direct our life. If he's our king, then, this is what we learn about the Holy Spirit. The Holy God in glory is in you. The Holy God in glory is in you. His spirit dwells within you. God in all his fullness dwells within you. You are his temple. 1 Corinthians says this in chapter 6. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your body. These people in the time of Corinth, were doing all sorts of things with their body. And Paul says, wait, hold on a second. Don't you know you're the temple of God? 
God lives within you. They, they, they were going and sleeping with prostitutes. And Paul says, that's just wrong. You take the temple of God and meet with the prostitutes. That's just silly. How can you do that? I, I encourage you to think about that. As you're there, as a Christian person, a follower of Jesus, he's Lord, and you sit down and you're watching a television show, do you think about, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit watching this? Hey, close your eyes. Is that what you do? Or do you just ignore God? Are you like the people back in Ezekiel's day who said, God's not here? I don't know about you, but it kind of freaks me out sometimes to think that God himself, his spirit dwells within me. And I take him all sorts of places with me. He sees all the things that I think in my mind. I don't know if that freaks you out. It freaks me out. Do we think maybe that we can hide little bits of pieces of idols and stuff in our, in our, in, as God's not going to understand this? We set up other things in our life as the centre part of them. God is God. The Holy Spirit is God in all his glory, in all his might and all his holiness, and he dwells in those who are his children. And so we yell at somebody in anger against the law of God. What do we think? Do we think, Holy Spirit, could you just put your fingers in your ears for a second because I've just got to deal with this. Or are we a little bit like those in Ezekiel saying, we kind of forget he's there? We kind of think maybe he's not there? Or maybe we think he's a little bit like the force? The force is strong in you. And we think sometimes when we want to do something by the Spirit of God, we go, use the force, as if it's just kind of this thing you can use or not. God is a person dwelling within us. He's not just sitting there kind of waiting for us to do something for Jesus and then a little bit of it goes out here and there. Sometimes I think that's what Christians think. You know, the Holy Spirit's kind of up to here at the moment. If I come to service, I'll get up to here. I'll go do a good deed in his power and eventually it's going to kind of get down to here. The Holy Spirit is not like water that slowly fills us up. It's not like the force that we can bend to our every whim. God's Holy Spirit is a person who dwells within us, God himself in all his glory. How does that relate to the way that we live our lives? I've, I've added a little bit there. It's not just you singular that is his temple, but the scriptures also took the y'all. I don't know, you all understand the term y'all? Use plural. Use are the temple. I don't know if you know how to say that. You're not sheep or nothing. But use are the temple of the Holy God as well. In other words, we as God's people are his temple. This is the application side of it, right? Understanding that God is with us. You rock up to church and there's a really good looking girl and you go, she's hot. Do you know what you're doing? You've just called the temple of the Holy Spirit hot in a sexual way. Man, that's dangerous. That's silly. You mistreat a brother or sister. You don't allow there to be unity in the body of Christ. All of those sorts of things. It's not a little matter. 
What was happening in Ezekiel's day, God says, do they think this is trivial? They worship other gods. They have idols. They're materialistic. They're pluralistic. They're idolaters. They have their own personal religion. They think I'm just going to stand here and go, hey, that's cool. I like being your God. You know, eventually we'll kind of get there. God says it's it's detestable. I, I don't like it. I want to leave. So you all are his temple. Number three, if Christ is your king, don't do all the detestable things that are there. Just don't do them. If we understand that God in his holiness dwells within us, we wouldn't do those things. That's it. That's the practical implication of of this first one on the Holy Spirit. God with us. Theological terms, what would I be saying? God is, the Holy Spirit is fully God. That's one of the statements we talk about with the person of the Holy Spirit. He's fully God. He, one of the things that he does, he lives and dwells within us. Putting all of that together, the application for us is, if we're Christians, we've acknowledged that Christ is Lord, then according to the prophecies of God, the promises of God, according to the words of Christ himself, according to the teaching of the apostles, then if that is true for you, and for me, I'm a Christian, then God's spirit in all his power dwells within us. Let's live like that. Let's go out into this week understanding that God lives in us. The holy God. It should change the interaction we have with our family. It should change the interaction we have with our friends. It should change the interactions we have with the church. As we, Pastor Dale said a little while ago, you know, we rock up to heaven and we see Jesus in all of his glory. God in all of his glory. We're going to say, man, I wish I'd done something different. Apply it to this. When one day we stand before God and we see the awesome God, maker of heaven and earth, and we think, man, he's been living in me for the last 25 years. That is so embarrassing. Man, if I had known that, if I had really believed that, my life would have been different. You wonder why Paul keeps harping on about these things. Harping, you don't say harping with Paul. Sorry, shouldn't have said that. You wonder why Paul keeps pressing these points upon us. Because Christians down through the ages, just like the people in the Old Testament, forgot God's presence. They trivialized it and they ignored it. Let me encourage you as brothers and sisters that as we go out into this next week, let's understand God just doesn't watch and see everything that we think and do. He lives within us as we do it. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I am so thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ that covers all my sin. Because I know that as a follower of Jesus Christ, if I fail and fall this week, God's Spirit will not leave me. But you'll notice in those promises, and we'll get to this later on in this series, all right? because God's Spirit lives within me, there has to be change. I grow and develop to be more like Jesus Christ. 
So the last application I'm kind of throwing in here. If you think back on your life for the last two years and you look back and you say, well, you know, I haven't really changed at all in my walk with Jesus. It's pretty much the same. In the book of Hebrews, another place says you've got to take a really hard look at your life and say, does God's spirit really live within me? I might say I'm a follower of his, but if my life hasn't changed, if I'm pretty much just as Christ-like as I was two years ago and his spirit is not dwelling within me and bubbling up into eternal life, if, if I'm not becoming more Christ-like, if I'm pretty much the same as I was, then maybe I'm confused. Because God says for those who are his, his spirit within them will constantly change and we'll get to that later. My suggestion to you is, as you go away from here, firstly, is he a king? If he is, his spirit lives within you. How do you know he's your king? Because your life changes as the spirit works within you. Think back to your life. Is your life changing? Are you becoming more Christ-like? If not, go back, have a really think, what does it mean for him to be my king? And for those who know he's your king and his spirit dwells within you, as you go into this week, Acknowledge his presence within you by the things that you say, the things that you think, the way you use your hands, the way you use your feet as you interact with people. For your body and us as a corporate body are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is fully God in all his power and glory. Let's pray. Dearest Father, I think back to the way that I live my life and know that many times I ignore your very presence within me. I thank you so much for the blood of Christ which covers all my sin. Father, I pray for all of us here who name the name of Christ. You say, I am God's. I am a follower of Jesus that we might give thanks that your spirit dwells within us in all your might and power and that that very knowledge by the work of your spirit might transform the way we live and think interrelate and interact with people that we might live lives that bring glory to Christ. That they will know by the way that we interact with one another that we are yours. Because your spirit so working within us just overflows. Father, we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen.